0: Hello, and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Rob LaMorgis. Hello, everybody. Now, there has been some discussion here at Get Me Another on if fantasy films such as Clash of the Titans, Legend, and Willow should be included in this series, as those films certainly have a degree of Star Wars influence. A great debate was held amongst the Get Me Another board of directors, which quickly escalated to lethal intensity, but it was ultimately decided not to include films that were deemed pure fantasy, as it might make our series a little unwieldy. That being said, there were two films in particular that blended sci-fi adventure with fantasy in a way that demanded their inclusion in our series, and the first of those is 1983's Krull.
1: On a distant planet, a great kingdom was ravaged by beings who came from the future to conquer the universe. Now, the only survivors follow a doubtful seer and a throneless king. They will hold her in the Black Fortress. You must have help.
2: Thieves, bandits, fighters and brawlers. Desperate men. Those are the kind of men I need. Well, you heard him. We are now an army.
1: At the end of an impossible journey, they must fight an invincible enemy.
2: Here's the knowledge you
1: seek. I shall be your king. In the fortress, you will face more than the slayers. What is about to happen to them it could never have happened on Earth. <laughs> Columbia Pictures presents a world apart from anything you have seen before. Crawl.
0: Krull. Krull was produced by Ron Silverman, written by Stanford Sherman, and directed by English filmmaker Peter Yates. Yates is also responsible for films such as Bullet with Steve McQueen, The Friends of Eddie Coyle with Robert Mitchum, The Underwater Adventure the Deep, and the classic coming-of-age movie Breaking Away. Uh, it was shot Pinewood Studios, and and the massive sets took up ten sound stages at Pinewood, uh, and it cost. It ended up costing about thirty million dollars. So it's not it's not a low budget film. Um, Rob, how do you feel about Krull? I
3: was uh, obsessed with this movie when I was a kid. I had the Marvel comic books, although always at that age, I never actually got all of them because <laughs> right. I wouldn't
0: necessarily have wound up in the store. Uh, when you're buying comics was, on a newsstand, it's a it's a whole different thing. It's what's there on a given week. Yeah, yeah. And
3: did I happen to go to the grocery store with my mom that week? Uh, <laughs> sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. But I I have a deep uh, affection for this movie because it is a childhood movie for me. And um, you know, I so I am a crawl defender, although I, I can recognize that it's not exactly
0: Star Wars either. Well, it's interesting because I I had sort of the opposite experience. I I this was not the first time I had seen Crawl, but I the first time was maybe a few years ago. So it was a it was not a movie I saw as a kid. For some reason, I just missed it, and I eventually came to it uh, when I was an adult. So it was my my experience with Crawl was just sort of fundamentally different in that it it it. Has no childhood nostalgia whatsoever. That said, I do like the movie. It's it's not it's not a bad movie. It's it's an interesting blend of science fiction and fantasy in in a way that almost feels like oh if George Lucas and, and J.R. Tolkien made a movie together, this is kind of what you'd end up with. And
3: I highly recommend because I I do think that's not the correct way to see it. I highly recommend getting a time machine because seeing this thing in the eighties for the first yes. time is the proper way to see Crow. I'll whether you're an adult or a child, um, you need, it needs to be the early to mid eighties. So just, you know, stop the podcast,
0: fire up the DeLorean (laughs) and get back there. Uh, the title Krull refers to the planet on the in which the action takes place. And uh, Krull, you know, has been... In, is, is it, the planet has been invaded by an entity known as the Beast, who travels in a massive, mountain-like spaceship called the Black Fortress. While his armies, known as Slayers, ravage the land, the heirs of two remaining kingdoms plan to marry and solidify an alliance that will combine forces and hopefully drive back the Beast's army. On the day of their wedding, the Slayers attack the castle and kidnap the Princess Lyssa. Her fiance, Prince Colwyn, sets out to rescue her, with the obstacle being that the Black Fortress moves and he doesn't know where it's going to appear next. He gathers a band of allies, including the wise Zinir, a magician named Ergo, and a band of escaped criminals and a cyclops, uh, and he eventually cover, recovers a weapon called the Glaive, which can be used to defeat the Beast, and uh, discovers the location of the Black Fortress. And spoilers, again, as always, we're we're dwelling in a spoiler zone. Uh, in the end, he does defeat the Beast and rescue the Princess. So right off the bat, because you
3: did kind of the characters, uh, you know, listing them out, I'm just going to run down them. So, sure. um, Colwyn is your Luke Skywalker.
0: With a dash of Han Solo yeah he's he's got a he's little Luke emotion, with with sure. with, a, with a little bit of Han because he's he's confident and a little swaggery in the way of uh you know in the way of Han Solo yeah and Lissa is your Princess Leia Absolutely. although
3: she doesn't she's not necessarily as active uh as uh Leia was in even even in Star Wars by no means then you've got your you've got the old man who yes. I like to use the yes. mythic terminology for him uh and he is called that in the movie but uh he is your Obi Wan. Um, then your Cyclops is essentially, I think, your Wookiee. Uh, what Virgo, yeah. uh, your magician, kind of functions as your comic
0: relief droids. Yeah, he's your C3PO. Yeah. Yeah. And then you
3: have the band of robbers, but then especially with, with their leader, is another, another version of the more um, outside the lines Han Solo. who yes. And who redeem themselves by the end as well. Absolutely. Uh, and a little Dirty Dozen, Seven Samurai, I guess, a little bit there, too.
0: Yes. crawl uh, stars Ken Marshall as Colwyn, Lizette Anthony as Lyssa, and it has an array of recognizable British character actors, such as Freddie Jones, David Batterley, Alan Armstrong, Francesca Anis, and early roles for Liam Neeson and Robbie Coltrane as members of the, of the, the Band of Thieves. And along with the leader, who's played by Alan Armstrong, um they're they're the only two i really remember cuz it's just it's a big band of thieves and then like oh that's uh it's it's Liam Neeson and Robbie Coltrane yes and this movie
3: forever uh, tied my mind with Excalibur which came out a couple years earlier but i didn't see it until it was on VHS mm-hmm. i feel that my brother's rented it around the time of Krull so i got a double shot of Liam Neeson before nice. i ever knew uh, because well, he's Gawain in Excalibur yes. as well, so I was primed for my later uh, Next of Kin and Darkman era Liam Neeson <laughs> already in the early eighties. Yes, so.
0: Excalibur is a movie that I love deeply, and and uh, is still is with unquestionably in my mind is the best Arthur movie, King Arthur movie that's ever been made, and maybe ever will be made. Uh, it's it's tremendous. Um, this movie. It really does try to mesh the sci-fi and fantasy tropes, even more so than Star Wars itself, which, you know, in Star Wars, you know, it it takes fantasy tropes and kind of does the sci-fi version of them. So, like, the Death Star is the sci-fi version of the evil castle from which the princess must be rescued. Uh, In Krull, the evil castle looks like a castle, even if it actually is a spaceship that could travel from planet to planet. Uh, in short this is a movie with swords and laser guns at the same time.
3: And I think even the uh, what the slayers who are the yeah. uh, evil minions of the beast that go out and uh, and do battle for him um they kind of their armor I mean I really can't describe it except to say Krull answers the question. What if stormtroopers were on the cover to a Dio record? That's and I awesome. think you have that answer in Krull because they are just kind of like Absolutely. spanky, medieval-looking stormtroopers.
0: The Slayers kind of perfectly represent sort of my thoughts and feelings on this movie. Because my, my big note was, can a movie be super weird and yet oddly generic at the same time? Because that's what Crawl feels like to me. There are some aspects of it that are so unique and surreal, and there are others that are so general they feel like they could come out of any generic fantasy movie. And and the slayers, like on on the one hand, they feel kind of like generic stormtrooper faceless bad guys w- who we can kill by the, the the dozen, and nobody's gonna feel anything. But at the when they die, when they actually get killed, there's this weird like <laughs> organic thing that comes out of their face, and it's super weird and unsettling. So it's this it's it is this mix of generic and surreal at the same time, and I'm like. I don't know how it holds kind of both things, but it somehow manages to. It's, it's a super weird movie in that regard. And I think that's one of the fascinations that I had as a kid with this,
3: because like, like when those slayers are killed, is that like the alien, like, uh, you know, symbiote worm yeah. is it sliding out? Is it oozing out like it's Dr. Fibes? Like, yeah. I, it's, you can't quite tell exactly what's going on, but it's totally gnarly.
0: Yeah, and, and that's, that's, like, that's the movie in a nutshell there. Like, like there, there are certain aspects of it that just feel kind of generic. Like, it could have come out of a, a stock company, you know, fantasy film. But then you have things like The Black Fortress. And, and the, <laughs> the Black Fortress and the, and the Beast are fascinating. Like, the scenes inside are so genuinely surreal. And the sets... Have this sort of organic quality. At times, it feels like the beast and the black fortress are one. That you know, aspects of the interior resemble eyes. Uh, you know, other other claws, other parts of the body. And honestly, I I kind of walked away thinking several things. One um, that if they had made an adaptation of the Lord of the Rings in the eighties. This would have been an interesting way to depict Sauron as sort of the intersection of, oh, it's Baradur and Sauron are kind of one in the same, you know, the tower is the the, the 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 entity and the entity is the tower at the same time. Um and that the beast is very Lovecraftian. Like it's there's a there's a cosmic horror element to uh you know to the beast. It's uh note, the first draft of this movie is entitled The Dragons of Krull. And the beast was intended to be a dragon, which would have made it even more sort of kind of classic fantasy. But, um, when the antagonist was changed to be a more reptilian creature, uh, the title was shortened to Krull, which is, it's an odd title. Like, it's like, oh, it's, I know it's the name of the planet, but it's like, if you don't know that, it just sounds weird.
3: Yeah. And the black tower is, is also fascinates me. Mm. Um, in the context of the era, it does kind of have a little, you know, obviously, uh, Dark Tower, Mount Doom element. There's also very much, even though it's the bad guy's home, there's also an element of Castle Grey Skull, which would have been in the air around this time. Now, I don't know. This probably would have been already in production before those toys hit, but...
0: Sure. But there's something in the zeitgeist for that, that combo of fantasy and science fiction.
3: But then you're right. When you go inside, what I had, uh, what I instantly thought, and I'm like, oh, this is another reason why I could see my little brain gravitated toward this. When you go inside that, um, that fortress, it's, it's essentially you've entered the Holy Mountain. You are yeah. in a Jodorowsky film, except yeah. this is supposed <laughs> to be a mainstream fantasy film, and as, as you say, it gets very weird with, like, the, the characters in a set that looks like an eye, and then you're kind of, like, pulling back so that you're seeing them through this vignette, which is also making it a little Brechtian in a weird way, yeah. as on top of it, where it's, it's they're not afraid to make it look like a set and be stylized yeah. in that way. And all of this is clearly 180 from the inside of the Death Star in Star right. Wars, which is very much a real world grounded. This is a sci-fi battle station with, you know, metal everywhere and just, you know, it's it's a, a working station. This thing is you've stepped into, uh, you know, a surrealistic dream when you're inside of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's the, the the eye, which is one of the first things I think you see inside the the the, the Black Tower. Uh, reminded me, it just instantly I kind of thought of Spellbound and the Dali-esque dream sequences. That the not Dali-esque, they were created by Salvador Dali. Uh, dream sequences from Spellbound, because that the eye is so prominent in those. Uh, and I was like, that was the first thing I thought of. Was like, oh, someone's, you know, kind of taken from that. It's 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 super interesting. And then other parts of it just feel so generic that I'm kind of like, oh boy, like it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the, you know, some of the characters just feel so stock. Like, oh, you know, the, the, the old man who's not, you know, who's, who's kind of the, the, the seer. And um, it's, it's so weird that this movie, it's like, it's. I have a hard time, you know, know, sort of kind of reconciling because it's like, I feel kind of two things at the same time. And, and it's, you know, it, it, it also has that, that we, like a lot of it is very kind of episodic. Like they're on this quest to find out where the tower is and they, they go, you know, it's like, oh, here's how we find out. And then that doesn't work. And it's like, oh, there's another way we can find out. And, you know, there's kind of like that, there's a very kind of, like, it honestly might have worked better in modern context as a limited series kind of thing where you could just have kind of episodic things. Uh, obviously, the, the world didn't work that way back in 1983. Television was television and movies were movies. And it's not like today where the lines blend in a way that I don't, that I still don't quite understand. You know, it's.
3: That's right. I mean, I felt that <clears throat> this is another area where obviously it differs greatly from Star Wars. Which is once the princess is kidnapped at the beginning, mm. it becomes a quest to save her. Yes. And uh, Colwyn, uh, you know, meets Inir, uh, and, uh who's the old magical man. But there's a, sep- a separate o- old magical man that he's going to meet later as
0: well. There's a couple old but, magical um, men. Yeah. Yeah. But
3: at that point, it really does become kind of a, a Liabe Seeds-style uh, trek where you are just picking up heroes along the way and there's a trial of some sort but it nothing is really building story-wise it's just okay while you're going to to uh you know fight the beast at the end Mm -hmm. you're just gonna have bad stuff happen along the way um also not unlike wizard of oz because that's true the witch does kind of get to do some from afar attacks So at the very least, compared to some of the other ones, the Beast is usually behind whatever the trial is that they face, but Mm -hmm. it still isn't really building story-wise. As for your points on the characters, I just wanted to say that, you know, the old man, or Inir, I I always mispronounce it. Meeting him is a perfect example, I think, of of one of the issues with all characterization in this. Um, I feel that in the scene, people are differentiated. Mm-hmm. but there is a lot of just in time delivery yeah. which lessens the impact so for instance uh you know the um you know the wedding between colwyn and lissa was attacked by the slayers she gets kidnapped it's after that sequence and you know the old man shows up and colwyn just goes uh something along the lines of oh, you're the old man you finally come down off the mountain, which you would never normally do. <laughs> so, I mean, it's maybe not quite that out of there, but it'd be like, you know, when Luke uh, meets Obi-Wan after um, the Tusken Raiders have gotten him. Mm-hmm. If that was the first time we'd ever heard of of uh, Kenobi. Right. But no, in Star Wars, you get it like up front with the Help Me Obi-Wan, You're My yeah. Only Hope. And that, that gets was just a crazy old man. Yeah, then you get the, well, there's Ben Kenobi, but I don't know an Obi-Wan. And so you have these breadcrumbs that are leading you there. And here it's just, oh, it's time to do it, which is weird. This is a two-hour film. Yeah. I, I you know, if they just removed maybe one of the trials in the middle, uh, they would have had room to, you know, have some more breadcrumbs perhaps.
0: Well, like that, the 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 sequence with the widow of the web is, is another one where there's a very surreal aspect to it. Uh, there's this giant spider and the, this woman who lives at sort of the center of the web and, and she, we learn that she had a previous relationship with, uh, with, with the old man. And, and, and it's this, it's an interesting sequence on its own, but it, it feels completely isolated from everything else in the movie, except other than he's trying to get information on how to find the dark tower or the, the black fortress. Um, it's, it's not, yeah, it's not, it's not like integrated. No, not at all. And it would have been nice to have a little bit
3: more about his long lost love before we meet her. Right. <laughs> For instance. Right. To, because it doesn't have the same emotional resonance it could have.
0: Right. Cause it comes up right there. It was like, oh, well that's, you know, it's, uh, it's funny that the, 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 well, no, we'll get to the, we'll get to the glaive in a second. But yes, all of that and and but the, again, in and of itself, it's done very well the the stop motion effects on the spider uh were I believe done by one of the one of Ray Harryhausen's uh, associates on Clash of the Titans, who then let, went on to, to work on this and it was it was um, you know it was one of those it's it's a really good sequence, but it feels so kind of self-contained and and isolated um, yeah. But
3: that, that hourglass and the sands going down and up yeah. and then coming out of the hand at one point, um, uh, and I I don't need to spoil the whole sequence, but in any case, there's a, the hourglass with the sand running in and out is a MacGuffin that will uh, keep you safe from the spider for a limited amount of time. And then, yeah. oh, but now you're trapped in the middle and you have to get back out some other way. All of that just was seared in my mind as a kid. Oh, yeah. It's like, that the
0: wedding with the mm-hmm. fire
3: hands yep. and then,
0: uh, the Cyclops, the Cyclops was great. I, I, I yeah, the Cyclops was fantastic yeah. and the makeup and that all, all I thought was great. And, uh, yeah, apparently that was like a, a prosthetic that went over the actor's eyes and then he could only see out through like the tiny hole and it was apparently he was basically acting blind that whole time and they had to keep him from wandering off into the into the swamp because there was a big swamp set. Um, it there it's the thing about this movie is it's it's actually a really well made movie. And Peter Yates was a was a very experienced director and and you know had done a lot of really good movies. None kind of like this. But, you know, uh, and apparently he hated making the movie. Uh, apparently, Peter Yates hated the process of making the movie so much so that he took a vacation to the Caribbean in the middle of shooting. It's just like, I, I gotta get out of here. <laughs> um, uh, but there's like incredible location photography during Colwyn's search for the glaive. Um, but there's also way too much of it. Like, it's beautiful. But it's like, okay, yeah, that's, an, that's another mountain. All right, uh, now we, let's, let's uh, they spend a lot of time on that. was like, oh, we're getting every, every penny out of that location photography.
3: And that, that sequence is interesting to me because that, I think, um, is at least one spot where I thought the movie is somewhat playing against itself. Where you have those big sweeping vistas of, and with the mountains and you see Colwyn climbing or presumably at times the stuntman. Sure. And the thing is, is at first it didn't hit me. And then I thought, wait, that is really a guy. There's no wire. He is free climbing because they weren't digitally painting out right. the wire then. Uh, and I was like, whoa, this is actually incredible. And it's shot very, there aren't a lot of cuts and you, it goes wide so that, you know, it's really happening. Yeah. And yet the music Is all very fast and upbeat as if he's like, you know, swinging across the Death Star or something. And I think it plays against itself where, because he shot it in so much more of a naturalistic style, Mm -hmm. it felt like it needed to be treated a little bit differently there because it's very cool. But uh, it just, to me, it played against itself a little.
0: I'll I'll remark this is another great James Horner score. uh, And it is also another James Horner score that has. You can hear elements of Battle Beyond the Stars and Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, uh, but it's it's another terrific James Horner score. the uh, the the core the
3: choir elements in that score are some of my favorite. It's just yeah. so it's very otherworldly and ethereal, and it act, and it fits kind of the uh, strange magic from
0: space element of this quite a bit. Yeah, it, it's it's a curious movie because for most of the most of the middle of the movie, it feels like oh, it's just it's 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 sort of pure fantasy um you know in in but then there's just these science fiction touches that kind of are woven woven into it that um super interesting let's talk about the glaive now just there's a weapon oh yes that is kind of this world's excalibur um the glaive which is the weapon that is by legend would be able to defeat the beast um and the recovery of the glaive, which is where is, Colwyn is going when he's climbing those mountains, is to recover this weapon. Uh, the, the recovery of it is very reminiscent of the pulling of the sword from the stone from the Arthur legend. Um, the problem there is, there's several problems. One of them is we're never really given the stakes. Like, well, you know, like it's they see the glaive in this pool of lava, and you know, Corwin, Colwin just pulls it out, and it's like, well, how does he know that he's okay to do that? How does his hand not get burned? There's never seems to be a moment of doubt or hesitation, or indication that anyone else tried and failed. Um, he, like he had to,
3: he had to crouch down when like three boulders rolled down that hill, Chris. It was a,
0: it was a very trying trial. Like I'm thinking of like the scene. <laughs> from Clash of the Titans when they go to Medusa's Island and you have all those statues around that you quickly realize are dudes that she's turned to stone. And it's incredibly creepy and, and awesome. And you instantly get the stakes of what, what is happening here and what could go wrong. Um, so, but he pulls the glaive out. Now the glaive is like, how do you, how would you help me? Help me describe this weapon because it's, yes. it is, it is, It is unique. I will give it that. It is not... They clearly wanted to avoid the magic sword. Like, they they didn't want it to be just a magic sword. Yeah, no, and and, and it is magic. But to me, it is a
3: perfect encapsulation of all things 80s because it's Freddy Krueger's glove inside of a switchblade throwing star. (laughs) Yeah. And it was the early 80s, so in the U.S., we were not saying shuriken yet. No. It was a throwing star. Yes. And that's what this thing is. It is a it's Freddy Krueger's glove in a switchblade throwing star, and I am it gonna is just,
0: awesome. I am gonna say it. The, the glaive is dumb. It is a dumb weapon. First of all, there is no elite grip. Like every time he catches it, because you throw it, and it's like he just happens to catch it. Where like there's no way the user of that, on like the second try, wouldn't have their hand sliced right off. It is colossally it's not a dumb.
3: But it behaves like one. It's It's magic. It comes back where he wants it to. I will, I will
0: defend the glaive to my
2: oh, grave. Oh, God.
0: There's, you're you're going to lose your hand. It's stupid. It is just... It is, it is silly. Uh, like a, and apparently a real glaive is like a pike. It's like a long weapon. Like they used, but they called it the glaive. They called this thing the glaive because, I don't know, they picked the name out of the weapons dictionary and decided, oh, we're going to go with that. Um, it's... It, Um, it's, it's interesting. It's the movie kind of, the other thing about the movie is it, it sort of struggles to define its world a little bit in a way that like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings do so easily. Um, and one of the things that that occurred to me about it is you, you see very few people in this movie that are not intrinsically involved in the action. There's no civilians you know, they never go to the bar with the the bunch of crazy, you know, you know, people or there's never, you know, like you get a cup, you get the army at the castle, but they're not really civilians. Like it, there's never like villagers or townspeople. You hear Liam Neeson talk about his his uh, his multiple wives in different towns. And one of them shows up, I think, um, you know, there's there's it's funny that this this movie, both movies this week touch upon polygamy a little bit, which is a weird uh, connection that I didn't anticipate when, when we paired these movies. But but uh, it's there.
3: Yeah, there there really is a, a Thundercats problem, right? There You have Lion-O and mum and that's it. And, yeah. You know, Chitara, and that's it. They're literally... Yeah. There's no one else in the world.
0: You're um, right. I, I never... I, you know, honestly, that was something I didn't put together with Thundercats as a kid, and now I'm just like, oh, yeah. Third Earth was super empty. I think I was so di- distracted by Chitara that I was not able to to have cogent thoughts, cogent critical thoughts at the time I was watching Thundercats. Um, Only now. Mumra wants to rule a world of six people.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And the Beast wants to rule a world of about, I don't know, maybe 18, 15. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, tops, right? Um, But, uh, you know, I will say it works a little, you know, to me it works a little better here in that, that whole stretch where there really aren't people it is supposed to be kind of the arduous trek through the, the areas where normal humans don't go because it's too dangerous. That's so true. So there, there is at least a little more of a story reason. And the wedding at the beginning, you do have guests and things. There, there are a lot more people in addition to the army. But it, it probably would have benefited, you know, from a little bit more of a feeling. And when you say defining the world, you know, in that first Star Wars... Um, You know, they drop things like Clone Wars and things, Mm -hmm. you know, the Jedi used to be there and now they're gone and the Empire and Vader, like, you know, had their hand in that. And here you have a whole prophecy about (laughs) the hero who would take out the beast and then they're, you know, he would rule the
0: world and his son would rule the galaxy I have the text of the prophecy here because I wanted to bring up the prophecy. It is a girl of ancient name shall become queen. She will choose a king and together they will rule the world and their son shall rule the galaxy. That is the that is the text of the prophecy. And I was like, is that a hook for Crawl 2 that just never came to be? That it would have a more space-bound, space-centric Krull 2, where you jump ahead a generation and and the sun is now going out to rule the galaxy. Yeah, with with Krull Dib
3: going out into the world. But uh, that prophecy seems to suggest people who know about space travel and technology, and yet... For the most part, I don't see anything that really would count as what we would think of as technology on crawl, and so that there's a tension there that that's interesting, but it doesn't. It just kind of goes left. Yeah. You know, they they really don't touch it, and you know, it's one of those things where over-explaining things is is usually very bad. But I feel a little more clarity there could have been helpful because it's a really interesting concept um, of of a potentially non-technological planet that's kind Mm -hmm. of medieval and magic but having awareness of technology from the stars i mean that's that's a cool thing but
0: in a a sense it feels like something out of the classic in particular the late 70s early 80s doctor who where it's like oh hey we're gonna have the doctor and his companion or companions uh go to a planet that is a medieval planet because the bbc's got a lot of medieval stuff in their warehouse Um, or like there's one particular favorite doctor who story of mine from the key to time series. The first one of the key to time, uh, where they go to a planet, which everything is vaguely Russian. And I'm like, did they do an Ivan, the terrible, Did BBC do an Ivan, the terrible mini series in 1976. And now we have all this Russian stuff. So, um, you know, let's use it for the, the, the ribose operation. I believe it was, um, (laughs) Yeah, it's I mean and, and the thing about this movie is it wasn't a cheap movie. It was very expensive. I mean, they took up tons of space at Pinewood Studios including the 007 stage. So like, you know, you could have sprung for a couple extras, you know, have a little village scene where you see the impact of what the slayers are doing to the planet, like to the to the to the populace. You know, give them something to fight for. Um honestly, there, I'll say it, there's there's more there's more uh, civilians in our next film. Uh, than, than there is in Krull, uh, despite the fact that uh, our next film was made at a much lower budget. Um, yeah, While Krull was very high budget and well-produced, um, the same cannot be said of our other film today,
1: Yor, The Hunter from the Future. There must be some place in this world where we can live in peace with our people. He is from a future world. <laughs> trapped in another time. Searching for his past. A hunter of incredible power and strength. In his quest for his origin, he and the woman he loves must fight hostile tribes. Battle deadly beasts. And try to survive the violent forces of a newly born Earth. He is the warrior known as Yor. His medallion holds the key to his destiny. His courage makes him master of a world in chaos. His enemy uses the weapons of tomorrow to enslave a primitive planet. But his passion for freedom will set his people free. Yor, the hunter from the future.
0: Uh, you're the hunter from the future. Let, let's just set the stage for you a little bit uh, as we as we transition into it. Um, the previous year, 1982, saw the release of one of the other most influential movies of this era, John Milius's film *Conan the Barbarian*, and the success of *Conan* kicked off a wave of sword and sorcery films that ran through the 80s. And rest assured, loyal listeners, we fully plan on doing. Get me another Conan the Barbarian in the not-too-distant future. So, but before that, we wanted to tackle Yor, The Hunter from the Future, because it is a very unusual film that sits at the intersection of Star Wars and Conan. And if Krull succeeded in blending science fiction and fantasy, Yor stitches them together like the Frankenstein's monster of genre movies. Um... It was an Italian production, it was shot in Turkey, and it was based on an Argentinian comic starring the incumbent Captain America, if you can believe that. It was written and directed by prolific Italian filmmaker Antonio Margheriti, or as he's credited in the U.S. cut, Anthony M. Dawson. Uh, And his work ranges from science fiction to sword and sandal movies, spaghetti westerns, and Eurospy films, and much more. The film starred in the title role of your American actor, Reb Brown, who four years earlier had starred in a pair of Captain America TV movies. It also featured French actress, Corinne Cleary as Kala, who I must point out has now been featured in three films we've covered on Get Me Another Star Wars. In addition to yours, she starred in The Humanoid as well as Moonraker, which I think entitles her to some kind of award that I'm sure she wouldn't want to receive. Um, Now, Before we get into Yore, I want to emphasize the spoiler warning once more because Yore is a movie with a twist, and we're going to have to talk about that twist. You don't have to
3: give the spoiler alert because
0: the title spoils the movie. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's true. But I just—I don't want anybody who <laughs> hasn't experienced Yore to, to be like, oh, well, now I'm not going to. No, if you if you haven't, and you and you, it's available on streaming. Your Hunter from the Future. I don't want to say I recommend it, but I enjoyed the hell out of it. <laughs> um, yes, the the, it, the the film tells the story of Yore. A roving barbarian inhabiting a a seemingly prehistoric land. After saving some villagers from a dinosaur, he, including the beautiful Kala, Yor goes on a quest to discover his mysterious origins. His only clue, the amulet he wears around his neck. And what follows is a largely mm-hmm. episodic set of adventures where Yor, Kala, and her mentor, Pag, encounter various dangers in this barbaric world. They are menaced by blue-skinned cavemen. They encounter a woman named Roa who wears a medallion similar to Yor. They save a seaside village from another dinosaur. And eventually, they make their way to an island where Yor's mm-hmm. origin is revealed. Now, here's the twist, folks. This seemingly prehistoric... It's work... from the future. <laughs> oh,
3: sorry.
0: Um, this, seemingly, <laughs> this seemingly prehistoric world is actually a post-apocalyptic one. And Yor's parents were part of a small band of rebels fleeing the tyrannical, despot Overlord. That's his name, by the way. Overlord controls an army of androids and the remaining nuclear material on the planet. And he plans to use Yor and Kala to breed a race of supermen who will go back and repopulate the Earth. Yor teams up with the other rebels, and eventually Overlord is overthrown, and they all escape an Overlord spaceship to the mainland and freedom. Yes, the film's title, the American title, You're the Hunter from the Future, does in fact tip the hand. Um, the Italian title was Il Mondo di Yor, or The World of Yor, which is, is much less, it doesn't give it away nearly as much. Uh, and what's what is fascinating about this movie for two thirds of this movie, it's basically a Conan knockoff. Uh, Although in terms of the sets and costumes, they remind me much more of like the old hammer prehistoric films, like 1 million years BC. Like there, there's not a real looking wig or beard in this movie. Um, But then two thirds of the way through all of it's like, it's, Oh, now we have stormtroopers and, and uh, you know, Kind cheap knockoff stormtroopers but stormtroopers and lasers and all of a sudden we're we're in a, a, a star wars knockoff and it's it's just a fascinating
2: yeah
3: the star wars knockoff was shot entirely inside of what like a brewery or something <laughs> it just looks like it's a lot of vats of things that they're like running around i'm
0: not sure um yes it, it does now well, before we get any further can we talk about the theme song because this movie has a Bangin' theme song, Yours World. Uh, written, formed by Guido and Maurizio De Angelis it's an '80s masterpiece, and it plays every time Yor does something cool, like turn a bat into a hang glider. Um, it's honestly what makes Yor's world such a special song is is the broken English. I think that's kind of the the best part of it.
3: Yeah, I uh, I did write down because it opens the film, and I guess wrote it down does right off the bat. Well. This opening is not a Star Wars theme by John Williams. <laughs> I'll say this. They they are going their own way. And um, you know what it reminded me of, at least in spirit, if not musically, mm. is the theme song to Wet Hot American Summer. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're just like, you know, it's like vaguely new wave, but just kind of 80s pop.
0: And it's, my wife asked if it was Duran Duran. And I was like, no.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I could see it's in that you know new wave pop kind of
0: yeah yours yeah. world he's the man yours world and the world is like fire i mean it's it's i've been singing it all week and uh uh and honestly you know, you'd think my wife would be aggravated with me um but she started to sing it too except her version is kind of high you know like it's like it, it, you know kind of blends your and and the Wayne's World song, so she's just like Wayne's yours world, you know. It's uh, it, it's 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 been a weird week at at the Iana Count House, uh, yeah. you know. Thanks no, to your. no
3: less weird for having watched your The Hunter from the Future, <laughs> uh, and yours look is pretty amazing. Uh, not that there's much to it because he's mo- essentially
0: like pretty naked. But uh, oh yeah, you, yeah, th- that loincloth does not cover much.
3: Yeah, like the furry loincloth you'd expect. He's got his, his medallion necklace. But let's just talk about that wig for a moment. It's, it's kind of blonde. It's like someone had a He-Man wig, except, except you know, hair or props, whoever had it, uh, just stored it by stuffing it into and taking it out of a duffel bag whose zipper would only open halfway. And that's kind of how
0: I feel the
3: wig was. Um, oh, it's pretty God. amazing.
0: Uh, apparently, this film was intended to be a four-hour miniseries for Italian television. And on one hand, I can kind of see that, given the episodic structure. But on the other hand, I can't imagine a four-hour cut of Your The Hunter from the Future. Um, that said, if if we if it ever comes to light, we will watch it here uh, on, on Get Me Another. We'll do a special episode on the four-hour Italian miniseries version of Your The Hunter from the Future. You know, And even if we can't get the footage, if they never shot it, if that
3: script exists, you could kind of oh. do, like, early Doctor Who style, where you just, like, do drawings <laughs> as other pe- actors read what's happening. Oh, so oh we, we should do, do it.
0: If we could find I would do a staged reading of The Yore, The Hunter from the Future, for the people. I mean, that's, you know, it's, um, oh, God. This is one of those movies that kind of falls into, like, I know it's not a good movie, but I enjoy the hell out of it because it's ridiculous. Ridiculous, um, you know. To me, it's it's like it's it's not quite to this degree of one of my favorite movies, *The Norseman*, starring Lee Majors, which is a movie where uh, Lee Majors plays a Viking who comes to the New World and fights Indians, and uh, and that movie is ridiculous, and I love it. I love it with all my heart. Um, and, th- and this is almost in that same category. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I will say they pace this
3: thing oddly enough fairly well. Um, yeah. Where they are, it's low budget and it's it, it's pretty cheeky. Um, and look, they're clearly having fun with this concept. Clearly. This, like, they are just kind of rolling with stuff. You are not supposed to take... This is not intended to be terms of endearment or anything. No. Um, but they... Every, every, like, I don't know, eight to ten minutes, they are going to give you something like turning a bat into a hang glider or a big fight or...
0: Your girlfriend
3: Uh, trying to murder your new girlfriend. Yeah, that happens. (laughs) Well,
0: well, first of all, let's your encounters Roa who's a woman who has the same amulet and she's being held in a cave by sand zombies and like Yor, she remembers very little of her childhood and she has no idea where the amulet came from at one point uh, the st- the stalactites in the cave start dropping on the ceiling and one hits roar in the head and Roa in the head and knocks her out and it's one of the unintentionally... Funniest moments of like it's it is it is the peak of stalactite based humor. It is so funny. I like I, I oh my god! But after your after your rescues Yo- Roa, there's a sequence where Kala, his main squeeze, becomes jealous of Roa, culminating in an attempt to kill her. Uh, she doesn't succeed in killing Roa, but the blue cavemen show up again and strike the the fatal blow, so she dies anyway. Oh, oh, my God. And you know, Kala,
3: Kala was not mourning that.
0: No. In the meantime, Pag was advising Yor to marry both of them. And again, this, these two movies are, are inexorably linked by polygamy talk, which I did not, I did not realize. That was, we did not pair those. The theme this week was not intentional polygamy. Like It, was just, it just so happens that the two movies talked about it. And just because you know, this is one where I I
3: walked out of this movie stupider than I than I went in, and not dumber, <laughs> stupider. Uh, was Too Peg? Old... Yeah. Was Peg the uncle, or was Peg? I'm not the clear.
0: Other... I'm not clear whether Peg was the uncle. or He's described as the mentor, Kala's mentor. I yeah. don't know what that means.
3: I really thought it was her uncle or something. But either, anyway, it it's so been. weird because he has been caring for her her whole life, and he's just like. You know what I recommend? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, marry her, but marry her too.
0: Um, um, they also, can we say that they, they mark Roa's grave with what appears to be the miniature Stonehenge Monument from This Is Spinal Tap? Yes, yeah. It's like, oh, my
2: God.
0: <laughs> her, her headstone is in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. Um Oh god! And so then, eventually, they get to this seaside village, I and mean, they have all sorts of adventures. There's a lot of fighting dinosaurs in this movie, uh, including fighting a a a, um, a stegosaurus, which in actuality was a, a herbivore, so it doesn't uh, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, and they they come to this 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 village by the sea, where like one one night. Lasers start shooting and, you know, start destroying the village. And all of a sudden, like everything kind of turns on a dime. Um, Yor discovers a mysterious box in a cave and the box starts talking, which leads to one of my favorite lines where just Yor throws the box down. Damn talking box. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, I uh, will say the the lasers at least are set up in this. Uh, again, yes. ugly enough, where when Yor first gets to that village, they're He's wondering why they're all like obsessed with looking at the sky and they're talking about the whatever the the fiery bird and they killed the the man from the sky so yes, they're, they're setting up. you already know something's up um although maybe if you haven't read the title, maybe you're thinking it's a guy <laughs> on a dragon
0: if you just walked in and never saw the title you're the hunter from the future what but he's not a hunter set back through time he the whole thing is set in the future we learn you know they get they then follow they, they 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 take a raft out to the island and they that's when they kind of everything turns and they you know it's like oh there's this this uh you know this evil overlord who's dressed like the generic spirit halloween version of a sith lord um you know, and and you know, you have uh, you have rebels, and you have uh, you know, kind of imperial forces and knockoff stormtroopers. Um, by the way, I can't help to think that Overlord, uh, that is his name, but I'll point out again, uh, might have inspired the Incredibles because he is constantly monologuing. Every time you see <laughs> him, he is actively monologuing, and you just have a like a row of androids behind him, just kind of like um, you know. And, and Overlord is basically trying to carry out Drax's plan from Moonraker. Like he's like, th- this island is the one piece of the world that was untouched by a nuclear holocaust. And uh, But, you know, for some reason, he, he wants to use Yor and Kala to repopulate the mainland. And, and again, another one of my lines where I just said, this is, this is an amazing, I can't believe this exists. Uh, he says, you know, to Yor, when you've inseminated this woman, you will die. And I'm like, well, that, there it is. That, that's, that's it. That is. That, that's it. Um, yeah, it, it was clearly filmed at a brewery. Yeah, Overlord
3: has a bunch of robot uh, henchmen. The henchmen's yes. helmets kind of are in the shape of Darth Vader's helmet, though. Or am I misremembering?
0: Yeah, like it looks a little like um, it, it reminds me a little bit of the draconian soldiers from Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Like that kind yeah. of slightly samurai inspired uh, thing. Uh, there's a there's there's a hall of mirrors sequence towards the end where uh, Yor and Kala uh, look. It's like imagine the hall of mirrors sequence um, from Enter the Dragon, except with two clumsy idiots. Like it's it's just they're they're bumping around and finally they bump like back to back and i like oh wait oh we found each other at last. It it also feels like it's a
3: single shot single take. I know that it's not, <laughs> but when you watch it. I, I think it's going to come across that way.
0: Now, like Star Wars, this movie has a, has a, 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 a sequence where someone swings across a chasm. Um, and here, they actually have to swing across to plant the bomb that will blow up the atomic pile. And, and the swing defines, it defies the laws of physics... Uh, gravity and logic, and it's actually the second swing because your swing's over and then the the rope kind of falls back. he doesn't keep the rope, so it falls back in the middle. and then Pack, who is like you know a sixty year old guy, uh, swings over and in the middle of the swing turns upside down grasping the rope with his legs so he could reach out for Yor with his hands and there's a moment in the scene and I freeze framed it I will I'm going to put this up on the Twitter feed and our, our 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 you know you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at get me another pod and see that they literally use action figures to stand in for the... There's an action figure that literally stands in for your in this sequence. And I swear to God, that's cinema, Rob. that this You're the Hunter of the Future may not be the best movie, but for God's sake, this is cinema. It's not the movie you wanted. <laughs> it's the movie you needed, Chris.
3: And uh, I, I love the palm light. I love the palm light oh, yeah. that Overlord has. It's kind of like a final <laughs> weapon against your where which his hand just you know is probably on fire from the light that they've put there because it's all incandescent back then baby and uh yeah and then Yor just runs him through with a pole which is a nice way
0: you know? he runs him through with a, a nice pole and it. then shoves him in an elevator so the pole like gets like kind of crushed as the elevator goes up it's amazing um Yor kind of wants to combine Conan the Barbarian and Star Wars, but what it really does is stitch together Ator the Fighting Eagle with the humanoid. Uh, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) uh, what amazes me, honestly, what amazes me the most about Yor... Is that it got a wide release in the United States? Columbia Pictures, who had released Krull earlier the same year, put "You're the Hunter from the Future" on fourteen hundred screens in the U.S. in the August in August of nineteen eighty-three. I'm like, this, I am I'm stunned that this movie had a wide U.S. release. I'm like, it is, it is so cheesy, and yet. So endearing, but it feels like the kind of thing that would have played it like a '70s drive-in, and then would have been lost. You know, it, it's uh it's amazing that I I own your Hunter from the Future on Blu-ray disc, and it is you know God, the anniversary God bless edition, the world, right? Yeah, no. oh yeah, it's exactly <laughs> it's uh it's amazing. Um, oh, yeah, I, I I'm not again. This is a movie that you know it has it has a quality. If you're looking for a movie that is sort of fun and you can laugh along with it is it is totally that if you're looking for like you know oh if if you're taking it seriously, it's ridiculous but but oh my God, is it so much fun if you're not yeah, and this is
3: one where i it it doesn't appear that they want you to take the filmmakers don't want you to take it deadly seriously it's it's not intended to be a full comedy, but it is they know that they're doing crazy stuff. I'll just put it that way and the filmmaking is again with, you know, God bless Italy. Uh, yeah. that they uh the the filmmaking is actually like super competent. This isn't one where you, you know, it, it's not like you're oh that cut was bad or anything like that. It is it is crafted. It is a crafted yeah. movie, but it's just it's just a little bonkers.
0: It's it is it is a, it is more than a little bonkers and it's you know, again, it, to me, you know, the 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 the, the I'm going to say something that's going to sound ridiculously like over the top but like the tapestry of 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 cinema is is richer for having bonkers movies like this you know yeah i mean i'm not saying you know, I'm not saying, oh, this is a better movie than Chariots of Fire or something, but like, you know, it's 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 I'm glad that both ex- I'm glad I don't know why I picked Chariots of the Fire. I think it's because Vangelis just passed away and you know he had an amazing score for that movie, Oscar-winning score. But like I love that both this and Chariots of Fire exist in the world, and and any kind I believe that any movie that can give joy Um makes the world a little bit better place. You know, that's kind of my my philosophy on it. People you know uh i watch people arguing online about stuff all the time and i'm just like you know if it gives you joy then uh then it's got some value and and in that sense your has value um and you know re- hey Reb brown
3: oh yeah what where Captain part Raven. of that for this movie is i believe he and he in particular but yeah. i think everyone everyone in front of this camera seems to be having a lot of fun
0: uh, coming th- this, to work. Let's that just day. say it. I, yeah, and you this can, would you have been f- so much fun to make. My God. Yeah. How much fun must this movie have been to make? Whereas, you know, cr- crawl Peter Yates just kind of, you know, ankled <laughs> it from the set because he couldn't take it anymore. This movie just feels like they're. Uh, like, honestly, if I could make these kind of movies just as, as as for a living and just have fun doing it. And even if you're not making the most amount of money, I'd be all right with it because it's just it's just joyfulness. And uh, I have a yeah, I have so an I, idea.
3: You yeah. and I start. It's a new summer camp for adults where okay. for the summer everyone comes and they make your the hunter from the future we just get the script and we get them to shoot it and it's like that's like, what you get to do for your summer vacation like
0: like a week long a week long your making Probably of your camp it. and you cast it and you have <laughs> honestly yes i i love that idea so much it's uh it's it's yeah that's fantastic um so that's I, I think that brings us to the end of today's episode we hope you've enjoyed listening it's it, again these two movies uh, in different very different ways blended science fiction and fantasy uh, and so we wanted to include them uh, even if uh, you know they 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 kind of are, are kind of on on the fringes of sort of our remit for this series um, we hope you've enjoyed listening and you'll come back next week where we're gonna discuss three early 80s sci-fi films that are are a little bit more um, in, the, in, the star, in the specifically Star Wars vein, we're going to talk about Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, The Ice Pirates, and from Shaw Brothers Studios, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Oh, thank you so much for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed the show, as I said, mentioned before, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at Get Me Another Pod. And we hope to see you next week as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, Get Me
2: Another. Yeah!